For most of the world, days move in a kind of ebb and flow between day and night. As the seasons change, one part becomes longer than the other as the two vie for control, but they always maintain a balance, a synchronicity. Countless cultures and mythologies have explained why the two periods have been in conflict for so long. Japanese mythos described the sun and moon as siblings, Sukokiomi, the moon god, and Amaterasu, the sun goddess. So upset over the murder of the food goddess, Ukemoki, at the hand of the sun goddess, Sukiyomi vowed to never see his sister again, causing him to hide when the sun appears. The Lakota tribe of northern U.S. and Canada described the sun and moon as lovers, with the sun god Wi replacing his partner Hanwi with a mortal woman at a grand feast. So outraged by his actions, he was punished and Hanwi was given the night realm to rule. However, due to her shame at her partner's actions, she hides her face from the world, causing the moon phases. Norse and Grecan mythology give us chariots riding across the sky, providing light and warmth and beauty throughout the day. The ancient Mesopotamians make both one god who travels the land, providing judgment to both the mortal world and the underworld. And finally, the Egyptian god Ra travels the world on a sunbark, providing light as he travels to twelve provinces until he dies. Upon death, he moves to his nightbark, and battles the giant snake demon, Apep, until he finds a solar bark and resumes his travels once more. Even with a modern view and science explaining the cycle, humans will always be curious and enthralled by the changing skies and cycle. However, what if this cycle isn't based on a steady, daily flow, but is more controlled by the seasons? In the most extreme points of the world, near the North and South Poles, Day and night can have very different meanings compared to what most people know. In the summer, days can last for weeks and months, showering areas with light. Likewise, the nights will follow suit, providing a contrast in the winter months. In the remote icy tundras of Antarctica, there exist bases set up for research. Due to the shifting temperatures and climate caused by the large swings of the day and night cycle, teams of researchers will find themselves swapping out residents in these remote facilities. The long summer months full of daylight and more tolerable conditions are the more sought after positions and time to be there. Come winter, however, these researchers test their resolve by locking the doors and staying inside the base, not wanting to risk the harsh conditions and frigid temperature drops of the winter months. Left with only each other for company under the cool artificial lights, the sounds of the wind howling, knowing outside only holds darkness and death, madness begins to creep in slowly. Tensions rise as the close quarters provide little peace and privacy. The days drag on until finally the winter comes to an end providing sanity and safety to the long isolated group. Imagine the isolation. Communications cut off from the rest of the world, everything moving on above the ground. Will you find a safe place to stay, letting the months pass by? Or will you allow the madness to creep in? Imagine now 
an unseen outside force making its way into the scene, finding a host, throwing the base into chaos as paranoia and mistrust take control. Join me as we visit with a group of researchers, cut off and isolated, not knowing who to trust or who's being controlled by the being known as The Thing. Now, grab a warm drink for this cool night. Lock the doors. Check under the bed and in the closet. Settle into your favorite seat and listen closely. It's time for another fairy tale. Once upon a time, in the winter of 1982, an American Antarctic research station raises an alarm at the sound of incoming gunfire and explosions. Looking on in confusion, the research team sees a lone Alaskan Malamute being pursued by a Norwegian helicopter. The dog races across the frozen tundra towards the lone door leading into the station when, through reckless use of a thermite charge, the helicopter is destroyed and its pilot killed in the resulting explosion. Frustrated and panicking, the surviving passenger fires at the dog with a rifle, grazing George Bennings, one of the researchers. The response is swift as Gary, the station commander, fires a returning shot at the survivor, killing him quickly. Not knowing what to make of the incident, the station crew organizes a trip, sending R.J. McCready and Dr. Cooper to the Norwegian camp, along with adopting the dog. The two researchers find the facility destroyed, most of its personnel missing, and a corpse in the radio room with its throat and wrist slashed. Finding evidence that the Norwegians had dug something out of the ice, the pair returned to the station with the partially burned remains of a humanoid corpse with two faces. An autopsy of the cadaver by Dr. Blair's inconclusive, save to find that the creature had what appeared to be a normal set of human internal organs. Clark, the station's dog handler, kennels the stray with the rest of the sled dogs. He leaves the dogs to sniff and explore each other, shutting the door behind him. It's not long before the rescued dog soon transforms into a huge, hideous creature. It begins to attack the other dogs. The loud barking and whining from the dogs causes Clark to return, finding almost the entire sled team in the process of being assimilated by the creature. Overhearing the commotion from the room, the nearby McCready pulls a fire alarm and everyone gathers to the kennel. McCready and Gary fire shot after shot into the creature to no avail as it closes in closer to the group. A figure pushes past and a shot of flame erupts, incinerating the creature as another man, Childs, sweeps the flamethrower across the room. A subsequent autopsy by Blair reveals that the stray dog was an alien capable of absorbing and perfectly imitating other life forms. Realization dawns on the doctor. He soon withdraws from the rest of the team, paranoid, knowing the implications of such a creature being let loose in such a small space. 
Bennings and Windows quarantined the remains of the dog creature and the Norwegian cadaver in the storage room, while Fuchs confers with McCready nearby. The two discuss Dr. Blair, noting how unstable he is becoming after his research indicated that the burned creatures are still very much alive. Windows, having left Bennings in the storage room with the remains, returns to find a creature wrapping its long, slimy tendrils around the screaming man. He alerts McCready, who activates the fire alarm. The team rushes in, cornering the alien in mid-transformation with the flamethrower and burning it with fuel. On the other side of the facility, Blair has calculated that the creature will assimilate the entire planet within three years upon reaching civilization. Reviewing the data over and over, he suffers a mental breakdown, his brain snapping and going into survival mode. Panicked, he disables the helicopters, kills the remaining dogs, and proceeds to wreck the radio room in all in an attempt to prevent the creature from leaving the base. Recovering from their encounter with the thing, the team arrives, overpowers him, and locks him in a tool shed. The reality of the situation settles into the crew. They're isolated now, cut off from their only contact, and unsure of who among them is infected. Windows finds that the medical blood supply has been destroyed, eliminating the chance of blood tests that could reveal the infected party. The team nearly dissolves into rampant paranoia as to who is guilty. McCready puts Gary, Cooper, and Clark into isolation and orders Fuchs to continue Blair's work. The clock is ticking as an arctic storm approaches, forcing the team inside tighter, safer quarters. As the storm bears down on the isolated base, Fuchs continues on with Blair's research, hoping to find a different solution. Without warning, the power fails, plunging the small base into darkness. The remaining crew makes their rounds, checking on the status of everything. They find the body of Fuchs, badly burned and unmoving, and check it weary of any sign of the thing. McCready speculates that, under the same mental break afflicting Flair, he used the flare to burn his own body, preventing the thing from infecting him. Gary holds up a piece of shirt, a piece with McCready's name tag on it. The crew grabs him and throws him outside to face the blizzard on his own. Time passes with the remaining crew trying to stay together and away from the thing, torn between safety and numbers and mistrust of who could be infected. A noise rings out from the storage area and the group races to determine the source. In the room they find McCready, somehow able to survive the storm and find his way back to the base, threatening to blow the room up with the dynamite in his hand. Tensions rise as the crew attempts to reason with him, the standoff escalating until the geologist Norris collapses when he and Cooper attempt to ambush the crazed McCready. Reacting quickly, Cooper grabs the nearby defibrillator, places the paddles on his chest, and fires off an electrical shock. His body jumps and his chest opens up, transforming and biting off Cooper's arms, killing him. McCready advances towards the Norris thing, grabbing the flamethrower and torches its body. As the body convulses and twitches, the head pulls itself off, scurrying away. The backup pilot Palmer notices the escaping head, and McCready swings the flames to catch the remaining piece, burning it alongside the body. The group reconvenes, 
their numbers dwindling rapidly. Looks and stares are thrown around as each crew member attempts to determine who is or isn't infected. McCready announces to the crew that he's come up with a test to determine who is carrying the thing. The group responds positively, ready to be rid of the suspicion and being unsure of where the thing is. Not everyone agrees, however, as Clark grabs a scalpel and thrusts it at McCready. The two fight and wrestle for control. The crew looks on in fear, panicking at the state of their once tight-knit family, now falling into self-destructive mania. A shot rings out, and McCready stands over the now-dead body of Clark. The rest of the crew lines up, ready to begin the test. Blood samples are drawn from each member of the team, including Clark and Cooper's corpses. McCready jabs each sample with a hot wire to see whose blood will react defensively. One by one, he moves to each sample. Windows and McCready both pass the test, as do Cooper and Clark, all declared completely human. Finally, he reaches Palmer's blood. He jabs at it with the wire. The blood reacts, pulling away as if in fear. Exposed, Palmer transforms, jumping towards Windows, and begins mauling him. Grabbing the flamethrower, McCready pulls the trigger, attempting to stop him. The thrower jams, and the crew can only watch in horror as the Palmer thing finishes off another. McCready finally gets the flamethrower working, lighting it up and burns Palmer thing, then finishes off with a stick of dynamite before burning the transforming windows. With two more dead, the surviving crew set out to the tool shed in order to administer the tests to Blair while Childs keeps watch. They open the door to the shed, dismayed to find that, in his desperation, he's tunneled out of the small shed. Following the path, they soon discover that not only had Blair been assimilated, but he had been constructing a small, flying vehicle of alien design underneath the tool shed in order to reach and infect the mainland. They've made their decision. The thing must be stopped. The base must be destroyed. The remaining crew returns to the generator room, placing explosives and setting the base to explode. Gary drops an explosive as the now fully assimilated Blair thing explodes through the floor, killing him in one swipe. McCready pulls out the detonator, ready to hit the button, ridding them of this monster. The thing rounds on McCready, knocking the detonator out of his hand, breaking it. As the Blair thing reaches back to swipe, McCready attacks it with a lit stick of dynamite. The thing stops, confused. McCready rushes out of the room as the explosion tears apart the thing and sets off the rest of the charges, destroying Blair, the thing, and the base. McCready wanders to burning ruins to face his fate with a bottle of scotch he found. He looks up into the falling snow, seeing a shape. He tenses until he's determined it's Childs, who they had left to guard the tool shed. He claims that he thought he saw Blair in the storm, so he went on after him and got lost, but McCready is unconvinced. With the polar climate closing in around them, and with no way to determine whether or not either of them is really human, they acknowledge the futility of their distrust, sharing a drink as the camp burns and the cold returns, awaiting their inevitable deaths. The most surprising aspect of John Carpenter's The Thing 
not to be confused with his other famous monster, The Shape, is that the movie was originally considered a commercial flop due to its low box office numbers. Released in 1982, amongst other more well-received science fiction movies like E.T. and Blade Runner, the film was considered instant junk and depressing and visually nauseating and was lambasted by the critics from day one. Fortunately, like the villains that we love to cheer, horror movies never like to stay dead. Despite the critical reviews, the film is lauded as one of the scariest horror movies based on the 1938 science fiction novel Who Goes There? Fans quickly picked up on the undeniable horror of The Thing and its themes of isolationism and paranoia once the film was released to home video. What we see here is a prime example of a cult classic, a media which has grown in popularity and success the longer it survives. John Carpenter himself is something of an enigma in the horror community. Widely regarded as one of the biggest names in horror and science fiction, his films were, with the exception of a few instant hits, mostly overlooked or heavily criticized upon initial release. Like The Thing, his films do much better months and years after release, becoming cult classics and long-adored fan favorites. Films like Assault on Precinct 13, Christine, and Big Trouble in Little China are still talked about and shared amongst the Carpenter diehard fans, making him a true living legend. The legacy left behind by The Thing is also one of enigmatic wonder. A comic series was released by Dark Horse Comics, featuring four miniseries to act as alternate realities and sequels to the film. An official prequel to the movie was produced and released in 2011, this one focusing on the Norwegian base camp from the beginning of the story. Carpenter himself released two more movies in what he considers the Apocalypse Trilogy, starring The Thing and adding in Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. The success of the film goes beyond the movie theater as the rising popularity had horror fans begging for more. In 2002, a video game adaptation of the movie was released, thrusting players into the role of an unnamed researcher, working alongside a mystery character to survive within the isolation and mistrust themes playing a large part of gameplay. Upon completion, players come face to face with McCready, who survived and was assisting them in their mission. The biggest indicator of success would come from the 2007 attraction of the Thing Assimilation Experience at Universal Studios' Halloween Horror Nights. The attraction provided a haunted house feel to participants, with scenes and props recreated for them as they wander through Outpost 31, the site of the movie. The success of the movie would largely be in part to the overall theme the movie presents, a type of horror that resonates well in reality, but is not always easy to portray. While the thing itself is terrifying as a monster that will not die, the feeling of isolationism and paranoia are the real monsters here. Bodily possession and the feeling of not knowing who to trust has had a long-standing place in science fiction. Films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Mars Attack 
fed on the fears of the Red Scare of the 50s and 60s, likening alien invasion to the mistrust the country felt at not knowing who was friend or foe. Demonic possessions have also used the same theme, ranging from obvious possessions like The Exorcist to more subtle, unknowing possessions like in the horror TV show Supernatural. The 2009 Doctor Who episode Waters of Mars had an eerily similar plot to The Thing, with the Doctor facing off against a creature found in a water source on a remote base on Mars who assimilated many crew members. Finally, mythology and folklore provide creatures like skinwalkers and werewolves, monsters that appear human but can wear anyone's skin or transform, respectively. You just never know who to trust. Isolation has been proven in numerous medical studies to have an interesting effect on the mind. Solitary confinement in prison systems is actually being reviewed as inhumane and a form of torture due to the long-standing mental health issues it creates. So it's no surprise that locking a group of people in a facility for months on end leads to its own tragic consequences. Australian astrophysicist Rodney Marks was stationed at the Mudson Scott Research Base in Antarctica in 2000. Shortly into the harsh winter stay, Marks was found dead, supposedly of natural causes. His body was put into storage and kept frozen since the base did not have access to a coroner. Once the winter was over, the body was finally analyzed and an autopsy revealed the truth. Marx was murdered by methanol poisoning. Due to the length of time from his death to the investigation, the remaining crew members had plenty of opportunities to cover up the death. Opportunities they took as authorities found that Mark's room was cleaned extensively and all his possessions thrown out. Rumors floated around about his violent outbursts and Tourette's related binge drinking. Add in the close proximity and psychologically draining winter months providing a perfect storm for tensions to rise, and we find ourselves with plenty of suspects and motives and no clear answers. This cold case will remain unsolved and leave many wondering just how real the thing really is. Fury Tales is a podcast dedicated to exploring how human fears have manifested in folk tales, urban legends, and visual media. It is written and produced by me. Music is provided by Nicholas Gasparini. New episodes will be released every Wednesday. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, as well as rate and leave a review. Every bit of feedback is valuable to me, and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out on a future show. Special thanks to Adi55 for their review on iTunes last week. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at fairytales13. And remember, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest 
and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. H.P. Lovecraft.